It's episode 120 of Leading Ladies of Corpus Christi, and I'm sitting in a Zoom meeting with the owner of Shell and Pine Vintage, Katie Jones Goldsby. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so in addition to your owning the vintage shop, you're also a content writer, which I think is so neat. You also started that uh, newsletter called Are You Shrieking? Are, are You Shrieking or Are You Shrieking Yet? Are you shrieking? Are you shrieking? I yeah. I started it today and I, I blew through them and they're so good. I love your style of writing. Oh, thank you. Yes. I mean, it's just, I identify with that so much. I wish I knew about it when it came out because I, I mean, just so, yeah. so good. I mean, in a, you started that, that was, one in April. That was like from the depths of quarantine, like I was going crazy crazy being home alone with my kid and the newsletter just kind of started as a way to do something that wasn't zoom school and <laughs> homeschool with her so I, I let it lapse recently but I'm actually planning on rebooting it this Friday so a new a new one will be coming out I Friday. can't wait I mean, really, as soon as I read it, I mean, just the way you put it, you were like, you know, I had this idea of like ra raising my children and wearing linen coveralls and like doing homeschooling. I had this this wild idea. And then as soon as I had my kid, I was like, no. Yeah, no, it, does, it doesn't exactly work like that. But it was so good. So relatable. And I, okay, we're just going to dive right into this because... Again, like, of course, you're so what I think you're most well known for is Shell and Pine. And, you know, the way you curate your your um, even like the most recent feature in the bend where you set up a, a table place, for lack mm -hmm. of a better word, um, and go gorgeous. Right. And then then you see if you dig a little deeper that you are just a kick ass writer. And not only can you curate a beautiful table setting, you can curate. I mean, I'm going to call it a blog. I know it's a newsletter, but in my mind, it's a blog. The way you curated your blog, I'm just in love with. And I mean, we're talking about stuff that someone like me doesn't see commonly. So like the way you have it set up, like uh, you're like, I know tie dye's the hip thing right now, but it's not new. Check out this video or this uh, piece from the 1930s where we're showing you how to tie dye. That was awesome. So how, how do you go about curating your newsletter in that kind of way? Well, I, I like to call myself a Jill of all trades, master of none. I love so many different types of information and literature and art and um, interesting gossip from just so many different things. And I, they all just kind of get stored in my brain and when I sit down to think about the newsletter, I'm like, okay, what do I, what, what am I, what am I into? What am I Googling this week um, that I, that might be something that other people would be interested in. And um, it could be anything from, I'm trying to think back on what I did. Um, there was like the tie dye thing, which was like a British cafe. Um, I love video. that. I love those archives. I'm always in archives. I'm always digging into internet archives of old videos or old newspaper articles and finding weird things that I feel like if I'm interested in it, other people will be as well. So hundred percent. Well, that's what I'm like, that's what I mean. It's so I, I showed up for the writing and I stayed 
for all the recommendations. You would have like something to watch and it wouldn't necessarily be a video. It would be like watch, you know, uh, this artist, right? Like, like keep an eye out for this artist because this artist is doing this or here's the thing I'm into right now. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, I, I learned a lot from just going through your newsletters um, that I don't see anywhere else. And so I actually started following a cleaning company, Good Clean Co., is that what they're called? Oh <laughs> yeah, because you mentioned them. So I'm like, man, okay, okay. I'm like taking all these pointers. So I, I can't wait for you to put another newsletter out. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, so there was, an, I think it may have been the very first one you put out, right? So of course, 2020, weird year for anybody who's listening to this in the future. And that's what triggered the start of the newsletter. And you wrote, because you're so fascinated with language because of your degree in creative writing, that you wondered how this was going to affect language. And I'm like, what an interesting concept. And so tell me more about how your mind works and how you kind of tracked like the colloquialisms throughout uh, well, pandemics or situations like this. If I remember correctly, I think that was sparked by an article probably somewhere like the New Yorker or the Atlantic. I can't remember the exact um, place that I read it, but it was talking about the Spanish flu epidemic um, in the 19-teens and how it completely altered slang and um, collo colloquialisms. Um, I always mess that So up. did I, so did I. <laughs> I'm nervous, um, I'm nervous, by the way. If I'm stumbling, it's because I'm nervous. Um. And just how interesting that was. And I, I had never really thought about that. Um, in my degree, my linguistics courses were my favorite. And I've always thought that if I did go back for a master's um, some, someday in the future, that that would be a really fun thing to go back to study. I love it. I love language. I love the evolving of slang and different folk pathways for language. Um, but yeah, I, I had never really thought about how something like an epidemic or a pandemic could affect the way we speak. And I just I just found it so fascinating. And I, I, I can't help but think like how, what will be the words that come out of this year and the phrases. Um, I think, I can't remember the list, but I think, is it the dictionary that puts out like the words of the year? I think they came out with their list a mm -hmm. week or so ago. I remember seeing something and it was like zoom and like all these other things that we're, we're dealing with right now that we wouldn't um, normally, but yeah, I just find that fascinating. I find that kind of thing really interesting. Me, me too. I mean, I guess I didn't, I didn't have a name for it, but, but uh, linguistics, I, I also love. Um, and you're right. Cause in, in this po or this newsletter, you say, now I'm throwing out words like quarantining and PPE and asymptomatic and what like words that had never been in your vocabulary um, regularly. I have, I, have, I have no medical background no, at all. Um, I'm not a science minded person when it comes to that type of, of language. And um, I found, especially back then when it was all so brand new and everyone was so worried and I would find myself talking to my husband and we would be throwing out these words that I was just like, I, would never say this word ever. Like, <laughs> if it wasn't happening, like what, when in my life would I be using asymptomatic? I don't think I would. 
So <laughs> yeah, who who knew, right? Now now all of us are virologists. Uh, but yeah, I I appreciated that very much because it it spoke to me because like I said, I think I I've been an unofficial lover of language and then whenever I read that I'm like yes I, I identify with this so much and so tell me about what made you decide to go into creative writing um I actually started um my degree was initially in journalism and um I was studying in the UK um we were I was living in London um and I went to London College of Fashion so I was studying fashion journalism wow and it was wonderful, fantastic, but it became apparent pretty quickly that I didn't really want to write about the things that they wanted me to write about. Um, I preferred writing more about like the social constructs of fashion and how it affected cultural movements and things like that. And they really wanted me to be like, look at these shoes that are coming down the runway. <laughs> you know, So it, it became really quick clear pretty quickly that it wasn't really what I wanted to do. So about two years into my degree and in the UK, a bachelor's is three years. Um, so more wow. than halfway through my degree, I decided that I needed to change. And so I came back home to Houston and um, transferred to the University of Houston into their creative writing program. Because I figured if it wasn't journalism that I wanted to do, let's give literature a try. Um, and pretty quickly, changed my specialization to poetry. So my degree is actually in poetry, um, which is bizarre and absolutely useless. <laughs> you think? But I think as a, as a lover of language, that that's a talent to me, right? Like not, not everybody can write a poem or I mean, at least a good poem. I think anybody can write a poem, but to really get right. the point across poetically is a talent. And so why the emphasis on poetry? Um, I love poetry. I think it, I think it came back a lot to my love of language. Um, I, by the time I I entered that degree program, I was quite a bit older than all of the other students, and I found pretty quickly that um, I really enjoyed like stripping away language and and really narrowing down to to saying things in the least amount of words. And um, that's not usual in a creative writing degree, especially mm -hmm. at a bachelor's level. Um, you usually get very flowery prose and it can get a bit. So I, I, poetry was kind of where I found myself at that time. I wanted to really, to really create work that was fluent in, in as small packages as possible. And it's, it's helped in, but I mean, I can't get a job with it. <laughs> so it was never, it was, it's not useless, but it was, um, it was definitely kind of one of those, you know, let me get this liberal arts degree. That's really not going to be worth <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but still, I still think it's great that you went for what you wanted to go for, you know, despite you know, society's view on what kind of job you would get or, or what kind of pay you would get. Because, I mean, I, I was there, right? Like, I, ultimately, I wanted to go into writing. And um, my parents did that. There's no money in that. And I didn't. And I wish I did. Uh, I really do. I wish I had gone for, for writing or English or something. 
I was I was really lucky that um, this is kind of a double edged sword. I was I was pretty wild as a teenager, and by the time I hit college, my parents were just happy that I was doing a degree. <laughs> that they were just like, whatever you want. <laughs> See, you did you did it right, Katie. You did it right. Drive your parents a little crazy, so they'll just let you do what you need to do as long as you you uh, choose a career. You're good. That's fantastic. I want to go back a little bit to your going to school in the UK because I saw that you actually went there fairly recently, like within the past year with your family and yeah. all the places you hit up and you sounded so familiar with it. And so how long were you living there and what makes you want to keep going back? So we were, I've actually lived in the UK twice. My dad was in the oil industry. So we lived in Aberdeen, Scotland when I was a kid. So Scotland is above and beyond my favorite place on this earth. And um, so that was, we wanted to take our daughter. My husband and I about 10 years ago had done a big backpacking trip and had spent a lot of time in Scotland and he absolutely fell in love with it too. So this year, our big trip was we were gonna take our six year old. It was gonna be super fun. And it was, it was an amazing week, um, but we just, we flew in the day the travel ban came down. So we made it in right <laughs> under the- That's terrifying. <laughs> experience it was definitely an experience geez uh yeah and so you hit up because it it seems to me like you have an appreciation for I mean a vintage obviously um because a lot of the highlights whenever you were there were in a particular museum oh my gosh I'm a museum fanatic like it drives my husband crazy he loves it too but like not anywhere near as much as I love it well (laughs) I mean if you're yeah. in another country, I mean, to see their museums has to be so remarkable. Yes. And, and so you tend to gravitate toward those. And what was that I particular do. museum? Um, the one that I was looking forward to the most was, um, it was the National Portrait Gallery in London. And they were having an exhibit on one of my top life inspirations, um, the photographer Cecil Beaton. And it was just one of those, oh my gosh, this is going to be happening while we're there. We weren't really planning on spending any time in London. We were probably, we were just going to stay in Scotland for a week and then fly home through London. And when I saw that exhibit, I told my husband, we have to take at least a day in London because if I miss this, I'll die. I have to go. (laughs) So luckily he knows, he knows how it goes. So we did that. And I'm so glad I did because within a week of us seeing it, it opened the week before we arrived, the exhibit did. And within a week of us leaving, all the museums in Britain shut. And so that that exhibit was only open for two weeks and it will not reopen. It might travel in the future, but I was one of the very few people that got to see it. And I'm so glad that we did. How cool is that? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm talking about traveling at just the right time. And especially to a place that's so close to your heart. And so when you were going to school in the UK, you said you realized that fashion journalism wasn't really what you thought it was in terms of what you wanted to write about. And another thing that I admire about you a lot and your platform is that you are very open with how you feel about certain social issues and um, any, any like the political climate, you know, as it were. And have you always been that way? Have you always been, you know, at the forefront of speaking your mind and all that? 
Yes, I've never had a problem speaking my mind. <laughs> but um, politically, yeah, I think I don't. I don't think I would call myself political until I hit probably my late twenties. But I was always very aware of issues that felt very close to me, um, mainly women's issues, um, women's rights, reproductive rights, things like that have always been really close to my heart. And I did a lot of activism in my twenties centered around that. Um, but when it comes to like kind of a broader range of of issues um i think it's been in the last 10 years that i've really started paying attention i think that's pretty typical i don't think most except for now i'm i'm it's incredible now to see how young a lot of these activists are um, for sure i can remember barely knowing anything about the political political climate when i was in my early mid-20s but absolutely uh <laughs> to me the whole i mean the fact that social media is present and putting information out there that you would never have known. Of course, that's a, like you mentioned earlier, double-edged sword in the sense that you have to kind of fact check to be sure what you're learning is the truth. <laughs> but uh, I'd say that has caused the younger generations to go like be leaps and bounds ahead of us. Yeah, I think social media has changed everything from culture to art to politics. It's just... I'm a big proponent of it. I'm not, I have a lot of friends who are very much like, oh, and you know, back when we were kids, we didn't have this and we were fine. And I was like, yeah, but God, imagine if we had, like, it just opens the world. It's amazing. I love it. You're I'm not, right. I'm definitely one of these people who's like, oh God, the kids on TikTok. I wish, I wish I was cool enough to be on TikTok. I'm not, I'm, and I don't think I ever will be, but I like to watch. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have a whole uh, highlights on your page of, of like TikToks with cats. It's so great. Like I, I'm here for it. And that's a very refreshing perspective. Cause I think you and I are this like in the same age range. And so I'm with you. I'm like, I think it would be cool to be cool enough to be on TikTok, right? I am absolutely not. I'll just kick back and uh, share some memes. I'm, I'm still with the memes. I think that's where I stop, like in terms of the, the new way to share content. That's fantastic. And so once you graduated um, with your degree, what was the next thing that happened? Nothing. <laughs> absolutely nothing. Um, no, I, I graduated. I had met my husband by then. Um, we were, I finished my degree mostly distance by that time. Um, so mostly online courses and we were actually living, um, in New Braunfels doing seasonal work on the river. So like working like hippies, we were like living in a tent on the Guadalupe river. Like, that sounds working. so fun. It was amazing. Um, but yeah, my, um, so a couple of years of just kind of pulling part-time jobs. I worked a corporate job um, and just trying to figure things out. I toyed with education, um, kind of fell into um, working as a, as um, in an elementary library we moved in, in Waco. Um, I was a librarian for, it was just, yeah, just, odd jobs really <laughs> but it still sounds days. so fun yeah i mean you're just kind of like going with what feels right yeah it was um it was super fun i've i've never found anything other than selling vintage that has lasted for very for for, for longer than a, a couple of years or for for i've just 
I couldn't, I couldn't stay in one space. And, um, especially with, with a writing degree, your choices are pretty limited. It's either teach or go back to school or write the great next great American novel, which wasn't really going to happen in my, you know, my late twenties, but <laughs> it could now. Yeah. Yeah. Though so now, now I'm uh, I'm doing the ghost writing, so that's uh, it's so different. cool, so cool. I'm glad you brought that up because so how did you so had you been doing any sort of freelancing? Because you you mentioned that you had jumped back into the content writing yeah. recently. So through all of this, through all of me trying to figure out what I was going to do, um, I did some freelance work um, for local publications in Houston. I interned um, at a couple of uh, magazines. And um, I have, I've, con- I've kept connections um, in the fashion world from my school course there. Um, I still have a lot of friends that um, work in New York and, and London. And um, I've done things for their type of, some of them have had blogs over the years and, and publications and things like that. Um, but I kind of, I had stopped probably about 10 years ago. It had been a while that I'd done anything um, on a regular basis. So jumping back into it was just kind of, again, during the pandemic, like, what am I going to do? I need to do something. Um, and just started getting on some of these freelance sites that were not around when I was doing it, Fiverr and Upwork and things like that. And uh, it's been really fun. Like, it's just, you know, I've been writing a lot of professional bios and product descriptions and things like that. But the ghostwriting is probably my favorite. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously since you're a ghostwriter, you don't want to divulge too much information, but you're like, I it's hilarious. I'm writing Amish romances. <laughs> okay. All right. Tell me what is, what does that mean? Is it a lot of like old school courting, you know, like, what is that? Okay. So I found the job on Upwork and it was, we're looking for someone to ghostwrite just as many, just churn out these like 15,000 word novellas about, um, in Amish romance. And I was like, what the hell is an Amish romance? <laughs> and so I Googled it and it's like, it's just basically, it's it's in the Christian kind of religious, conservative religious like genre of fiction. Um, and so I was kind of like, okay, kind of read up on it a little bit, um, looked at a couple of free eBooks. And so just like threw together this writing sample and sent it. And um, the lady got that. And, and I thought, I thought the writing sample was pretty tame. Like, you know, I think, I mean, it was a romance. So I'm trying to write something for a romance. And so it's like, literally, I think they like looked at each other. Yeah. And um, the lady got back to me and was like, oh my gosh, I love it. Have you written anything like this before? The only thing is like, it's too sexy. And I was like, okay. That look was too smoldering, Katie. And so they were like, it has to be, I think her words were, it has to be pure as the driven snow. Like it has to be completely like, they're not even allowed to like think about anything, you know, sexy Mm, or whatever. So it was very, uh, like, okay. So I said, well, I I mean, I'll try, I'll see. And I wrote one and they loved it and actually am submitting the third one today. So tonight I'll submit it. (laughs) Okay. No, this is so cool for a lot of reasons because they're essentially giving you free reign, right? Or do they establish the characters? Well, they, they send me a plot. So they send me a plot outline, which can be anything from just like a word dump, you know, by chapter and with the plot line 
Um, I have a feeling they probably source out other freelancers to create these plots for them because they never come in like the same format. But um, it's just like a general plot. And then I have creative leeway to kind of like fill in the blanks and create the characters and, and those type of things. And so it's actually so fun because I've always been like paralyzed to write fiction. Like I've written fiction since I was a teenager, but I've always been kind of paralyzed to write anything that I felt like might be worth anything. So this is really good practice um, kind of filling in these plots. And I'm hoping eventually to kind of gain some confidence enough to where I'll be able to write. I'm actually considering writing my own damn Amish romances <laughs> and putting them on Amazon. That's what I'm saying. People will scoop this shit up. People love <laughs> romance in any capacity. And what I think is also super cool about what you're writing is that you absolutely have to get creative and how you're describing the interactions between these people yeah. because it's not your cut and dry. We're going to hold hands. We're going to kiss. We're going to go to bases, yeah. whatever the bases are. You know what I mean? <laughs> like this, this is different. And, uh, it, I mean, I want to read it. It involved a lot of research too, because like, obviously not Amish. So I was just like the, the only thing I know about Amish are like some really terrible, like lifetime movies from like the nineties. Mm -hmm. Like, have no clue and rumspringer so, which like every secular person knows about yeah so i watched i watched um when i got the job i sat down and i found some this old like 1980 something pbs documentary on you know the amish and like sat and watched it and read some you know like read some other kind of I actually bought a few other, you know, Amish romances and read and was like, okay, I, I, I think I can do this. <laughs> and so far they've really liked it. So I have a feeling, cause I haven't, I haven't asked to see that like when they're going to be published or under whose name or anything. I just know the name of the publishing company. And um, so I haven't, I don't know what their editing process is. I don't know if they have someone that comes in behind me and kind of adds in more Amish details or changes words. And I'm sure they probably do, but it was fun. Like it's, it's still kind of fun to write in something that's so absolutely completely different from anything I've ever <laughs> experienced. Right. Well, whenever you share that in your story, I'm just kind of like an Amish romance. Well, it makes <laughs> sense. Like they want to, you know, have their hearts fluttering reading stories aren't Amish the readers are nine times out of ten um evangelical Christian women they come from like very conservative and, and it makes sense because these are very clean very conservative romances and so um it's kind of from what I've read I've read some articles on on why it's such a popular romance genre and apparently it's because um you know, they're, they're, they're wishing for this kind of more old fashioned time and, and all of that. But yeah, like it's not, I don't think it's the Amish reading them, which is kind of weird if you think about it. But you're right because I mean, the way I understand the Amish, I mean, they don't have the internet or, or anything like that. Yeah, so how would they even come across them? I mean, and, and yeah, these will definitely be eBooks. Like I, I don't think that these would be any kind of anything else, but th there are several I think like Harlequin and all those other romance publishers have Amish, you know, labels under them. And so you can get actual books, but I don't think it's the ones, I don't think they're the ones buying them. But um, I just, it just cracks me up. I mean, I, I get, I get a lot of um, 
I get a lot of pleasure out of the idea that the people reading these are like going to be very conservative, very, you know, <laughs> just, and then here I am, I'm the one writing it. <laughs> For sure. It, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But it also says so much about you as a writer. And so, okay. So when you took a break I'm totally fascinated about this aspect of you, by the way. That's why I'm just uh, really going for it. So when you <laughs> took the break for 10 years or so, where you didn't really write much, I mean, did you feel it? Was it always in the back of your mind? Like I should be writing or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, and I, people in my life were always like, Katie, what are you going to write? What, what are you doing? Why aren't you writing? And, um, a lot of it was, you know, I, we were, um, so my daughter's six. So a lot of that 10 year time period was, you know, being pregnant and raising a, a very small child and didn't have time for it. So now that she's a little bit older, I feel like I can actually sit down. Like I can, I can shut the door and I don't have to worry that she's going to like fall down the stairs or something. <laughs> <You know>? so, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, it feels good to be back doing it. Like even, even if it is just like, even if it wasn't the ominous romances, if even if I was just writing the professional bios and stuff like that, like it just feels good to actually be turning something out. And that's exactly why I started doing it. I just wanted to get back in the game, just kind of let it start up and see where it went. And girl, did you look at you with your series? I I want to read these. Like I'm 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 so thrilled for you. And um, as someone who's always kind of toyed with the idea of being a writer and just never quite made the jump, hearing about someone like you doing it, it just it's so inspiring to me. So like, thank you for sharing that. Keep sharing it because it it makes my day to hear about like what new gig you have and all that. So. Okay, to the vintage. So have you always had an eye and a love for vintage or did you cultivate that later in life? Always. Um, my mother is an incredible collector. Um, she's, growing up, we, our, our houses were furnished and decorated with things that she would find at garage sales and thrift stores. She was dragging me with her when I was still in diapers. Um, the Our local Salvation Army in um, near Hobby Airport in Houston, uh, the, they knew us so well that they would take me behind the counter while she shopped and save baby doll clothes for me and wow. Christmas cards. Like they were, it was just something that I always, always did. And when I was a teenager, it was just, it was kind of on the cusp of thrifting being cool. Like it was cool for certain groups of kids. Like it wasn't yep. cool like it is now, but if you were kind of an artsy kind of outsider kid thrifting was you know what you did and and so I started going more regularly with my friends and um finding vintage clothing and I've always had that interest in fashion so clothing is kind of how where my business started I started finding cool things at the thrift store and this was in like the mid 90s and eBay was like fledgling it was so and I can remember making my first sale on eBay and being like holy shit, I spent 50 cents on that and I just sold it for 50 bucks. So wow. there is something here. Like this is something that I could do. And so I did. I did it through high school and college. Um, and it didn't really become like an actual way of generating income until um, my husband and I 
were doing the seasonal work and it was just like an extra way of bringing in money. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just kind of went from there. So, and eventually as I got older, it shifted from clothing to home decor because that's kind of where my interests shifted. And now it's kind of shifting to both. So it's, it's always kind of changing whatever I'm interested in at the time. I love that because, it, yeah, it's constantly evolving. But what I think is even cooler is that you've been doing this since you were a kid. I mean, you were turning it around. I mean, so have you always been an entrepreneur in spirit? It sounds like it. Yeah, well, I think I think that was a big, like, wake-up call for me. Um, I must have been, like, 15 or 16 the first time I sold something. And um, it was very much like I don't have to go work at the yogurt shop where all my friends are working, I can go, I can sell this stuff and make just as much money as the part-time job that my friends have. And um, I mean, I did, I worked part-time in high school, but it was very much like, I'm good at this. This is something I can do. And and it also kind of feeds into the, all the stuff that I'm interested in. So whether or not like in, in high school, I was really into like 1970s fashion. And so it was all like, 1970s band t-shirts and <clears throat> jeans I was really into like Levi's bell bottoms and stuff like that and I'm the type of person when I get interested in something I learn absolutely everything I can about it down to like what type of stitching is used to the silhouettes to fabrics wow. to who's designing the fabrics this kind of stuff so it was like an outlet for the much nerdier aspects of my <laughs> interests. Yeah, but that, I mean, those are the kinds of skills that make you successful in what you're doing now. Not to mention, I'll bring up the newsletter till the day I die. That newsletter, <laughs> because it's just, what you just said describes how you curate your newsletter perfectly. Because, I mean, you're, you're putting links for things and um, price ranges for different coasters made by different people with a, like a similar patterns kind of stuff. I mean, those are the kind of blog, I, I keep calling it a blog, but those are the kinds of, that's the kind of content people want. Kind of like a catch-all where everything you need to know is there. And I, yeah, it's, it's very much like I, I want, like I said, if, if I'm into something, I'm going to, I'm going to research it to death. I'm going to find out absolutely everything that I can about it. And so, yeah, that does translate. I'd never really thought about that. That translates well into like content curation, like being able to share all those types of things. Um, but yeah, it also, it, but it also, I found in selling vintage, especially when it comes to like decor and clothing, um, knowing those things about the items is, giving my customers confidence so they know like there's I mean there's so much vintage out there now it's such a huge industry and there's which is amazing I love it I love that there's like a niche for everyone for every type of interest and style that you have um but customers can feel very like oh my gosh there's just so much stuff and and yeah. how do I know if this seller is you know pricing their items fair like it's just it becomes this kind of and so i feel like if i have that knowledge in my back pocket and i'm sharing that then i'm i'm giving them more confidence that the item that i'm selling is something worth them spending their money on so it's kind of like i want to and i want to pass that knowledge on i'm very much into like the idea of a of a unending chain for these items like every person that it goes to it's a new link 
in their chain and I want that information to go with them. So I love that. Yes. Cause you're totally thinking about it from the perspective of the customer. Cause as somebody who's very interested in vintage, I'm overwhelmed because of what you just said, because there's so much out there and how do I know it's good or a good deal? And you know, yeah, that kind of stuff. So I love that you're, you're keeping that yeah. in mind whenever you're, you're uh, looking after your clients. I have to, I have to remind myself that not everybody is as into old stuff as I am. Like they, they might be into it, but they might not just be as like immersed in it. And and that can be difficult because I am, and, and we are, our house is completely decorated and furnished with it. A, a huge percentage of my wardrobe is secondhand, but I have to remind myself that even the, even my customers, that's not the life that they're living. So I have to, I have to really like, at the end of the day, I'm selling like old shit, like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's literally in your, in your, uh, your Instagram bio. (laughs) I have to, I have to tell them why it's, it's worth them spending their money, not just because they like an item, but if they're, if they're, if they're going to, you know, spend, spend the money that I say that this is worth, then they need to know why. And, and I, I, so, but again, uh, 90% 90% of it is because I just like to research. So <laughs> I just like to Well, you're just having that. a badass time by the sound of it. I mean, I, I'm in awe of you and what you do and how much you love it. That to me is so powerful and uh, definitely inspiring. And so when did you decide to go full on, I'm going to, you know, start a shop and, and do this regularly? We, when we moved to Rockport, so... Um, we moved to Rockport in, I want to say 2015. Um, and my daughter was still very young. Um, my husband was working full time. I, for the first time in years had nothing going on. Um, you know, I was just raising my daughter and, um, so I started, I started again, selling vintage. We would go picking and, um, in Rockport, I was just like, you know, rent, commercial rent is cheap. Um, there's a storefront. Let's do this. And we opened the shop in um, February and had to close it because of Hurricane Harvey in August. So it was like a flash in the pan, but it was so fun and so eye-opening. Like it was so, I had, it had been a dream for so long to have my own space and, um, and I had a blast with it. It was so much fun, but it was also a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And um, when it shut, when we had to shut it down, you know, I spent months agonizing over whether I should reopen, what it was going to look like, um, where we were going to do it. We didn't know if we were going to stay in Rockport after the hurricane. Um, and finally, just my husband was just like, Katie, like, do you want to do this? Do you want to open a shop? And I was like, you know what? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I want to reopen. And so I didn't like, it was just, so it all became online and then it just snowballed from there. Like a lot of it, I, I, I think a lot of it had to do with just how amazing this community is after Hurricane Harvey, people stepped up. They, someone heard from someone that I had lost my shop and they showed up at a market and, you know, bought stuff because they wanted to support me. It was just like, it was that kind of word of mouth and it was just so incredible and I've never, I mean, coming from Houston and the Austin area, like these huge, like you are a small fish in a huge pond. And 
being vintage sellers in those kind of markets, you get lost. Like you don't have that kind of support. Like you might have some followers, but you, it takes a lot of work to get that kind of support and customer base. And it was happening so fast here. And it just, it just shows that Corpus is just incredible in that way. Um, everyone just really supports small business here. And it just blew me away. So when we decided that after about a year, um, after the hurricane, like we just couldn't do it anymore. Our entire lives were commuting into Corpus. Um, my husband wow. was commuting. My daughter was going to school in Corpus. And so we sold our house and moved into the city and never looked back. Like we love it. It's been great. So, yeah, that's what that's a hell of a story. And thank you so much for sharing, because I've been wondering this myself, because I'm like, man, you know, Corpus really is, you know, so all about supporting small and supporting local. And are other cities like this? Like, I feel like I don't hear about it, really. And so it's cool to hear that from your perspective, like while there's the support, the market's just so saturated. That's just not quite like it is here. And, and, and they're so divided. So like in Houston, it's very much like, you know, if you're supporting small businesses, you're supporting the small business that's in your area, like in your little, in Katy or Kingwood or wherever in part of Houston. Um, but here it's just everyone, it, we're small enough to be able to just across the board, everybody is like paying attention to what businesses are open, what restaurants are opening, um, who's, who's collaborating with who it's just, it's incredible. Like it, I, I, I think places like Houston and Austin wish they could have that kind of ground, you know, that movement, um, beneath small business. And I don't think they do. I, I think it's a totally different, um, it's a totally different vibe here. Everyone's really into it. Yeah. I think that's part of it. Right. I mean, we're just so hardcore that, uh, we're going to support our, our local makers and creatives and, and shop owners and, uh, I, I'm thrilled that, that we are like that because I'm born and raised from Corpus. And I remember when, I mean, it was mostly chains, you know, like yeah. you hardly saw any small businesses anywhere. And then, of course, we didn't have social media. And so even if there was someone really cool, the odds of you're finding out about them if they weren't in your immediate vicinity were low. And so now, thankfully, because of, you know, everybody shouting from the rooftops, check out this, check out that. What has she got going on? Uh yeah. I mean, then I come to see, you know, people like you and then the amazing things you're doing. And then like that spread you did in the bend with the table, it, I think was the name of the piece. And, uh, they did the four different styles and yours was so awesome. And so tell me about the inspiration behind yours, because something that I loved about the excerpt, whenever they talked about your particular setting is that you essentially say like, don't worry so much about the rules, like do what feels right for you. Uh, I, I mean, that's kind of, of my the way I live my life like don't worry so much about what people tell you you're supposed to do um but I will say and this goes this kind of connects but this is a nice little connect back to um writing um one of the things that I love about poetry is that um poetry has a form it has rules and I'm one of the lessons that that are my professors would kind of pound into us is that you have to know the form and the rules to break them so like if you're going to write some incredible experimental poem, you have to know the poetic forms to be able to completely twist them and break them. I love that. I can remember being like, I don't know, 26 years old, however old I was, and just being like, mine, like, oh my God, that makes like, that is just what? Like, I want to, I want a tattoo of that, of that you know, <laughs> like that's like... 
And I've just, it's always stuck in my head, no matter what I do. And so I love when it comes to like table setting, like I, I, I research the rules. I know the rules, but I don't use all of, I, I, I may not use any of them, I, but, but knowing that background, knowing kind of like the history of where things go on the table and the history of textiles on the table and, um, kind of helps inform you when you do something completely different. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. Like I, I feel <laughs> no, it's perfect. Uh, yeah. You have to, yeah. Uh, the, I mean, your professor said it perfectly. You have to know the rules in order to break them or know the forms in order to break them. And, uh, yeah, that definitely just fell on me right now. I just wrote it down because I'm like, that's great. Oh, it was, it was a, that, uh, yeah, it was a, like a life, like a life changing moment for me. Like that I've always been, I don't want to say a rule breaker. I haven't always been a rule breaker, but as, as a kid I, and, and as a teen, I was very much like, like I would push against rules and, and what I was supposed to do. I, I grew up, uh, you know, we grew, I grew up in an area that was very like suburban Texas. It was very like, this is the kind of life that you're going to live. These are the kind of cars you're going to drive. This is, and I was very much, nope, I'm not doing that. I, I refuse. And going to college and learn and, and someone telling me that saying like you you can break the rules as long as you do the work to do that exactly like, holy shit <laughs> but that's that that's the big qualifier as long as you do the work to you know go yeah. after whatever it is you're going after yeah. uh that's huge because you're you know especially right uh, in terms of, and I'm thinking about it more in like, like life in general. I mean, especially as a woman, there's certain expectations of you and, um, to hear anybody say, I mean, even if it's for something like setting a table being like, it's not that serious, do what feels yeah. right. Yeah. Don't worry about what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Everything should be fun. Everything. Like what's the point of setting a table if you don't love it, if you don't love the way it looks like if it's, it, if you're setting a special, like, I mean, obviously, like, you know, if I'm setting a table for my kid and we're just eating lunch, then it's like, here's your paper plate. I don't care. Like, it's not like, you know, we're not like eating on like China over here. Like, but if I'm going to, if I'm going to take the time and energy to like make something pretty, then I, I want it to be something that I love. And I'm a big proponent of like using beautiful things um, and not being precious about them. Um, and so I, I want, I want to use a, a fun tablecloth or a beautiful tablecloth. And I want, I want to use glassware that, you know, that has a story behind it. Um, but I, but I don't want to follow like the Emily post guide to etiquette, you know, like I'm not, <laughs> well, you don't seem like the kind of person that would, you know what I mean? Like you, you do what feels like right for you, <laughs> but I'm not gonna, it's not, I I'm fascinated by rules. And I think that's pretty typical of people that like me, we're fascinated by rules. We're fascinated by like the reasons behind things. Um, that doesn't mean it's going to be my reason, but I just, I like learning that kind of stuff. I like learning why, why am I supposed to put the salad fork here and, and not, you know, here, like this is getting messy metaphors with all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's things, uh, but you're right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, people will be following certain, you know, like guidelines and just doing yeah. it for the sake of doing it without really understanding why. And yeah. I love that you're really 
like yeah. going in deep and really figuring it out. And, uh, and it, I feel and I, also with an understanding, there's also a better appreciation for these things. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I don't, I don't expect people to get as like nerdy about this kind of stuff as I do, but, um, I think, I think at least knowing, knowing the rules so that you can break them. I mean, that's, that's super easy. Like you can, anyone can Google, how do I, how do I set a table? You know, and, and there will be a diagram. There's like 20 million diagrams and they're, and they're all like the glass goes here. The plate goes here. The napkin goes on this side. The knife has to face into the plate, you know, like, like it's all very like, there's lots of rules. And I mean, anyone can Google that and they can look at it and then go, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. But for my family, I want to put the napkin over here because maybe more of us want it on this side, you know, like it, you don't have to do it the way and anyone, and of course, there's always going to be one person in your Instagram commenting saying you put the napkin on the wrong side, <laughs> and you just gotta be like, <laughs> you just gotta be like, I know, I know, I did, I know the rule, but I didn't want to do that. <laughs> that was intentional, Karen. <laughs> That's great. So another highlight in your on your profile that I really appreciated was it's called. Hold on, let me make sure I get it right. Round top. So you turn this into like a whole trip and highlight reel, which I thought was really cool. And so tell me all about the purpose of round top, because something that you kept mentioning was you were doing it. You were there to train your eye. You were there just to kind of scope everything out, not necessarily to pick up anything. Right. So round top has been going on for like 50 years. It's Texas antique week. It's a big deal. It's held in round top in Warrington, Texas. Um, which is like these two little towns and there's a stretch of highway in between them. And it's just like, they call them the fields and it's just fields of dealers that come from all over the country, all over the world in a normal year this year, not so much, but wow. they come, they come with these containers full of the most knife. And, um, a lot of it is just like, there's no way I can afford, you know, 10% of the stuff that you see there, but it's very much like I go to to see what these dealers are interested in. Um, I learned so much by doing that. Um, there's a there's an incredible dealer out of Austin that I love, Amelia Tarbay. She is like she is on that like mid century kind of California organic, like Ooh. beautiful handmade furniture, like stuff that you only ever see on some designer's Instagram. And so getting to go into her space and like touch things and like read the name of like the, the maker and the designer, it's just, you can't, you can't get that from, you know, lurking on someone's Instagram, which is what I, what I usually do. But um, it's an incredible education. Like if you're into vintage, I would recommend, I mean, go to round top knowing that you're probably not going to buy anything. <laughs> like it's so expensive. And it used to not be that way. It used to be the place that people like me would go twice a year because they hold it in the spring and the fall um, to pick, to, to, to find treasures out in the fields. Because not only do they have the really curated dealers, um, but they also have like the big fields, which are just like booths, like just, just as far as you can see. And um, there used to be incredible deals, but now... I mean, everyone knows about it. People fly in from New York. They fly in from London for it. So, no. Wow. And, I mean, some of the most people, people bring containers over of European antiques. Like, it's the place to go if you are looking for, like, 
a 19th century French cabinet or something like that's where you're going to go <laughs> find it. On a stretch of Texas highway. Like who yes. knew? Oh my God. So funny. So Round Top, they are both like adorable little towns. And so like you're, you walk into like this amazing curated European antique um show because they're all separate they're all individually owned shows so it's all it's all under the umbrella of texas antique week but they're all the shows are individually and privately owned and so one show is in the most incredible 19th century texas dance hall with like the wood floor and the big rafters like it's this old like square dance you know type building and they've got all these (laughs) that's so cool I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's, and then now it's, it's spread out. A lot of the surrounding towns are having their own market. So, I mean, you could, I was there for two days and I mean, I saw maybe a quarter of it. I mean, it's huge. It's massive. And so it's, but it's becoming very much like, you know, like country living magazine has a guide. They put out a guide, you know, like they, everybody is, so you get a lot of like girls trips and like all these ladies with their wine, which is super fun. But like, it's, it used to be very much, it was just all people with their notepads and their measuring tapes, all these dealers, you know, now it's very much like a destination to go. (laughs) That is too funny. I mean, it looks so fun. I'm like, how have I never heard of this? And so when you go and you're training your eye, like, so what is it that you're looking for? So are you, are you able to differentiate between pieces or time yeah, periods I, or? I don't really go with this. I mean, I, 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 I'm always looking for whatever I'm interested in at that time. So like right now I'm very into, um, English antiques. Um, I'm always into 1930s, anything. Um, so you know, I go and it's just a way to like touch and, and see things that I wouldn't normally ever get to see in South Texas. Like, you know, if, if there's an incredible, you know, arts and crafts, English cabinet floating around somewhere in Corpus Christi, it's in a private home. I don't get to go visit it and look at it, you know, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's very much, it's the best way to do that. And I try to make a point like wherever I am to like seek out those type of antique stores, those really high end, um, you know, and I might buy something every once in a while, but mainly it's just to be able to see things like they're, they're like museums. Those dealers don't expect everyone that walks into their space or their, or their doors to buy things. They know that their prices are high. They know that it t- it's a certain type of customer who's buying these things. So, it's totally acceptable to walk in and just like drool over everything. <laughs> yeah. Cause I definitely did that when going through the stories. I mean, it just looked so incredible. I mean, so much potential, just so many beautiful pieces, just, I mean, ideas abound when you see that many, you know, beautiful items in one spot. And it made me think like if I were to attempt to start anywhere, I mean, to learn that it might be there. Yeah, definitely. Um, especially when you find dealers who are knowledgeable about the things that they're that they're selling, because I mean, most of them are like me; they love talking about it. So if you ask questions about pieces, you'll learn the most amazing things. And uh, I I I love I love antique dealers. I love vintage and antique dealers. I think we're we're a uh, a special breed. <laughs> like we're everybody. We're just we just love talking about like the most silly details of 
a piece of furniture and we could talk about it for like days. <laughs> but it's also important to that particular piece, right? I mean, you know, all of these weren't mass produced somewhere. I mean, a lot of these were, you know, handmade or small batch or something. And, yeah, and that is fascinating in and of itself. I mean, there's a reason so many people desire these unique pieces yeah. now. And the fact that you have the knowledge for it to me is just huge. Cause I mean, for someone like me, I have no idea. I'd have to talk to you about something like that. And so something else that you started offering very recently, and I'm glad you did, and it's kind of blown up in a way is the face masks. And you have done a tremendous job with those masks. I have two. I want so many more from you. <laughs> but uh, so has sewing always been in your repertoire? It has. Um, I learned as a kid. My grandmother taught me. Um, and then it. I always kind of done it. My There's always been a sewing machine in the house. My mom used it like hem curtains or, you know, like make a Halloween costume or something like that. But um, when I started selling vintage clothing, I realized very quickly that if you're going to be a serious vintage clothing seller, you have to know how to repair things. Like it's just part of the game. And, um, especially the type of clothing that I eventually started to sell, which was more antique, like pre 1950s. And, um, so very quickly I learned how to do that. And a lot of that is um, both machine sewing and hand sewing and darning and patching and things like that. And um, so sewing, and, and then when I had my daughter, it was very like, I wanted to make her clothes. I, I'm a big collector of vintage textiles and fabrics. And so I love making her like little outfits out of things. That's so, so cool. Uh, so I, it's just, I, I'm always, I'm the type of person, like I can't, I can't do, I can't watch anything without doing something. Like I, if I'm watching a movie with my husband, I have to be like doing something. I have to be like knitting or embroidering or, or something like I'm, I'm constantly, I can't sit still. So crafting and, and sewing and things like that, or had a part of that. <laughs> I wish I were like that. I can very easily sit still on a couch and watch something. <laughs> the only other thing I'll do is reach for my phone or something to eat. Oh, I find that more like that's, I have to make a conscious effort these days, like stop scrolling through Instagram, like do something with your hands. But, um, I, it's like a form of meditation for me, especially things like hand sewing or knitting. Um, it, it the repetitive, it's so it's just, you're, you're doing it the same thing over and over and over. So it is, it's, it's very much like a meditation. Um, but yeah, the, the face masks, oh my God. Like that was again, like this year, it was just something I was like, you, I can do that. I saw, I saw some fabric ones. And I, my cousin is a, um, an oncology nurse at Texas Children's in Houston. And so at the very beginning of the pandemic, when everyone was freaking out about PPE, um, you know, I messaged her and I was like, I want to let me send you some face masks. Cause you know, oh my God, everyone was freaking out. She was like, yes, please. Oh my God, send me some. And then another nursing friend in Houston, found out about it and called me and was like, I've got a team of 30 people. Um, we're, we're terrified that we're not going to have face masks. Can you make like, I, she, she, she was like, I'm sending you, I'm Venmoing you a hundred dollars, make as many as you can. And I was like, Oh my God. And so wow. I was like sewing for them. And then that kind of tapered off as the supplies, as they started getting, like, I, I was, so I was sewing and I was so mad. Like, I can't believe that these, stupid shitty fabric face masks are what are going to be protecting my friends and like my family but beautiful and, yes 
this. Yeah. And so I tried to make them as fun as possible, but also like just like furious that this was something that was happening. Um, but then as like medical supplies started coming in and they were able to get that, um, I started getting, I had, while I was doing that and I was sharing that on my Instagram, like I'm sewing these for my friend. And so people would message me and I'm like, I want to buy one. And I was like, no, like I'm working on these. Like, I don't want to sell them. Um, and, uh, when they didn't need them anymore, I was like, well, I guess I can sell them. Well, well, I, you know, here we go. Let's do this. And it just took they (laughs) so beautiful uh and just they kept I love that like they progressed so it started off with I mean I'm terrible with like the specifics of the type of material but I guess it was like a thicker almost like linen and then you went with like some silky fabrics I'm like these are just nice and the fact that I mean you'd only have so many at a time you know what I mean that was the other thing there was like an exclusivity to it I didn't want to, I mean, cause I, at the same time, you know, I have a six year old underfoot. I was like doing other, like other things were going on. And I was like, I don't want to get this influx of orders and just be chained to my sewing machine, having to like catch up. And yeah. so I was just like, okay, I'm going to sew like six of them. This is what's for sale. You know, like this is how it's in. And then I'm going to sew another six of them. This is what's for sale. And it worked out really well. Like people, people really responded to that and and I think it goes back to like I, I wanted I'm again I, I like things to be pretty so even if it's like the most mundane like thing so I was like I've got all this vintage fabric like overflowing in my studio so let's use it for something well trust me we're all grateful because wow and I know that um you still have some for sale at the shell and pine website do. In addition yeah. to those really awesome, those sweaters that you embroidered, oh, those are yeah. on there. I mean, you have vintage clothing, jewelry, books, uh, yeah. uh, home pieces. I mean, mm-hmm. the website is fantastic. And that's, is it shellandpine.com? Yeah, all spelled out, shellandpine.com. Yeah, and then uh, people can also find you on Instagram, of course, at shellandpine. At shellandpine. And then here locally, I have a booth at Red Crow. So that's where like physically people can go and look at some of the things that I'm selling. That's so great. I mean, you really are a Jill of all trades and uh, (laughs) I am so thrilled. I got to sit down and talk to you tonight. You're just so (laughs) inspiring to me. I mean, the vintage is incredible, but I'm like extra, extra excited for you and your writing. Um, So just thank you for being so open and out there and talented and just doing what you do and, and sharing it with your followers like myself, because we love watching you. And of course your vintage pieces, your table setting, the way you curate, uh, I mean, whatever it may be just incredible, Katie. So I just want to thank you so much for, for being on with me tonight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.